We have a lengthy passage this morning, in fact, two chapters, and certainly we will not be reading the two chapters unless we all agree. If we can come to that decision, we leave here about 2.30, that would be fine. All right? If not, then I won't do that. So I'm going to read, um, for a start, Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, and we're going to read to verse 5 of chapter 2. Galatians 1, verse 6 to chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul is writing to the Galatian churches. And he says there, beginning at verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's epistle to the Galatians has well been described as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty or the Great Charter of Christian liberty. And it is so characterized because in it, Paul addresses in a thoroughgoing manner the subject of law versus grace, defending the gospel of the free, saving grace of God apart from the works of the law, that gospel which calls believers in Christ to freedom from the yoke of slavery, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 13. The yoke of slavery there, of course, is referring to legalistic adherence to law. Galatians is a special book for us as Christians. We are in Reformation season, and last week we began looking at some Reformation themes. We looked last week at the sufficiency of Scripture, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, the centrality of the Word of God, the centrality and sufficiency of the Word of God. But Galatians is a special book for us as Christians because it highlights for us the sufficiency of simple faith and trust in Christ for salvation. It decisively establishes the truth that one is not saved by ritualistic observances, by works-based righteousness, but by faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians alerts us to the danger, the real danger there is, of losing our hold on the simplicity of the gospel. The real danger of adding to it foreign elements of self-effort with a view to earning our salvation. As we know, the epistle to Galatians was pivotal in the Reformation. It was one of three books of the Bible that served to ignite the fires of the Reformation, particularly through reformers such as Luther and Calvin, the other books being Romans and Habakkuk. Well, what was it that led to Paul, led Paul to write this letter to the Galatians? False teachers, specifically Judaizers, Jewish religionists, as we might call them, were teaching the Galatian Christians that in addition to faith in Christ, they had to be circumcised if ever they were to be truly saved. And of course, this was not the gospel that Paul had taught them. As Paul intimates in Galatians chapter 1, 6 and 7, this was a markedly and more so troublingly different gospel from that which he had presented to them. Paul saw it necessary to pen this letter because these Jewish legalists were upsetting the faith of these Galatian Christians. In fact, as many as three times in the epistle, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7, 
chapter 5, verse 10, verse 12, Paul cites the fact that they were troubling the Christians. And the idea behind the word trouble is that of creating turmoil, inward turmoil, of disturbing, of unsettling, of throwing into a state of mental confusion. And this was particularly frightening when we consider that these were brand new Christians, almost not even a year old, and the situation then called for urgent attention, urgent response from the Apostle Paul. The presence of these heretical teachers was troubling enough. What was even more alarming, what was even more concerning for the apostle was that these Galatian Christians had come to embrace their legalistic gospel. Here, Paul, for example, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Normally in his epistles, Paul would take time out in the introduction to offer greetings, words of commendation, words of praise, and even prayers on behalf of his readers. We see him doing that, for example, even his letter to the Corinthian church, a church which by every account was unchristian in its conduct. But here in this epistle, To the Galatians, Paul does none of that. Instead, he cuts to the chase. He at once expresses disappointment in the Galatians. You see, Paul was utterly incredulous. He could not come to the place where he could believe that they, having professed faith in Christ, had so soon, so quickly, as he says, deserted the one who called them into his grace. could not understand how they were shifting from the gospel, the truth of which had been so plainly, so convincingly presented to them, chapter 3, verse 1, and which truth they had welcomed with such glowing enthusiasm, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Indeed, all the way to chapter 4 and verse 12, where he laments, Paul laments, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul has nothing of commendation of praise for these Christians, but largely censure, disapproval, disappointment. Interesting thing, however, is that he still lovingly regarded them as true believers in Christ. How do we know that? Because as many as 11 times in the epistle, Paul refers to them as brethren. Now, based on Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, which seems to me to be the overarching agenda of Paul's letter, this letter to the Galatian Christians, we want to discuss the subject, retaining the truth of the gospel, retaining the truth of the gospel. Paul says, regarding these Judaizers, these Jewish religionists, he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. One translation renders the last clause in order that the truth of the gospel might continually remain with you. 
In this sermon this morning, I want to answer the question, how do we as Christians retain the truth of the gospel? We can almost hear at this point the warning issued by the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. We therefore ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should drift away from it. Particularly in these days where there are so many contrary voices, so Many theological upheavals concern the gospel. It is crucial that you and I understand. It is crucial that you and I have a handle on what this gospel, this true gospel, really is all about. So the question becomes, what steps can you and I take so as to ensure that we retain the gospel? We retain the truth of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel remains continually with us. So I have a few suggestions, and the first is this. The way we retain the truth of the gospel is this by holding to the conviction that there is but one and only one gospel. By holding to the conviction that there is but one and absolutely one true gospel, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And in these verses, Paul, as we said, is utterly taken aback by the Galatians, turning to what he describes as a different gospel, a different gospel, which at once he qualifies as not being truly another gospel. Here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul uses two contrasting Greek words for the word another, the word heteros and the word alos. The word he uses in verse 6, heteros, conveys the idea that the gospel of the Judaizers was an altogether different and contrary kind from the one he had preached to the Galatians. In verse 7, Paul uses the word alos, which means another of the same kind. And by his use of these two Greek words, Paul effectively makes the point that in truth and in fact, there is not another gospel, not even another of the same kind. In other words, there is but one and one gospel only, period. Today we hear all kinds of talk about this gospel and that gospel. But we have to remind ourselves that we need to take a stand, my friends, that as far as the word of God is concerned, there is but one gospel. That gospel is clearly defined. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul spells out that gospel as follows, Christ giving himself for our sins according to the will of God of God. Anything other than that, anything that, that does not concern the death of our Lord Jesus and faith in him is not the gospel. Any other gospel so-called is a fabricated gospel. It is not good news. It is only bad news that damns souls to a Christless eternity. If we are going to preserve the truth of the gospel, if the truth of the gospel is going to continually remain with us, we must hold firmly to the conviction that there is but one and absolutely 
one gospel. So we retain the truth of the gospel in that way. We hold to the conviction that there is but one gospel. Second, we retain the truth of the gospel by coming to grips with the fact, here it comes, that diversion from the gospel is desertion of the Lord. Diversion from the gospel is desertion of God. Paul's astonishment that the Galatian Christians was related not only to the fact that they had so quickly removed themselves from the truth of the gospel, but that in so doing, in so doing, they were in effect turning away from the Lord who had called them into his grace. Now here's the very interesting thing, and it's very sobering when we stop to think of it. The word Paul uses here for deserting was a word that was used in classical Greek to speak of a turncoat, a traitor. It was used to speak of a person altering a treaty or of soldiers defecting from an army. As used here, the verb is in the present continuous tense, which suggests that at that time when Paul wrote to them, they had not gone into full apostasy, into full departure from the Lord, but that they were gradually doing that. My friends, let me say here, it is a sobering, frightening thought to think of this, that whenever, if we are not embracing the one true gospel, the word of God bluntly, categorically declares that to do that is to, in fact, desert God himself. That's what Paul says. Now, even as Paul expressed astonishment that they could have done, that they could have deserted, that they could have turned aside from the one who had called them into his grace, the Galatians, no doubt, were likewise astonished to hear Paul saying how that they were deserting God. And truly, if you and I were told that, if we were in the show of the Galatian Christians, if we were holding to some false gospel, we would be inclined to be alarmed, to be shocked, and we would say, what? No way, no, I would never desert God. And yet the sobering, frightening truth is this. That's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what people are doing when they are adding to the gospel, when they are coming up with a gospel that is not the one true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, later down in the book of Galatians, Paul is going to speak, actually it's in the book of Philippians, he speaks of those who are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Not to embrace the one true gospel is to be a traitor to God. It is to be a traitor to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In digressing from the gospel, beloved, we are inevitably deserting the Lord himself. I think it was Warren Wearsby who said something to the effect, not only were these Christians deserting the grace of God, but they were also deserting the God of grace. That might not be our intention, but the fact is, whenever we are embracing another gospel, that's tantamount to defecting from the Lord. We don't want to do that. 
How do we retain the gospel? How does the gospel, the truth of the gospel, remain continually with us? We have to hold, first of all, by way of conviction, that there is but one gospel. There's not another gospel. There is not a so-called social gospel. There is not a black gospel. There is not a white gospel. There is not a gospel for the poor. There is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are going to retain the truth of the gospel, we must come to the understanding, the sober realization that diversion from the gospel, digression from the gospel is desertion of the very God who has called us into his grace. Thirdly, we retain the truth of the gospel by understanding that distortion of the gospel incurs divine judgment. Distortion of the gospel incurs divine judgment. Oh, beloved, listen, whatever form it takes, perversion of the gospel, addition to the gospel is perversion of the gospel. And whatever form it takes, perversion of the gospel is a very serious matter. So serious a matter it is, it carries with it eternally damning consequences. Irrespective of whether it's purveyed by the apostles of Christ or by a heavenly being. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 8. Here's what he says, but even... If we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Some commentators might say, well, this is, was, is not to be taken as an absolute statement. Paul was not saying that such a stance is eternally damning. But let me say, my friends, on the authority of God's word, you look at how serious the gospel is when you consider there is but one gospel by which men are saved. If one is not aligned to that true gospel, then one cannot be truly saved. It is not Christ, faith in Christ, and it is not faith in Christ plus it is faith in Christ, period. Here Paul is implicitly warning the Galatians of the great danger of equating the truth of the gospel with the outward impressiveness of those who preach and teach it. That's what the Galatians were facing. They were facing these Judaizers, these Jewish religionists who were coming in the garb of apostolicity, pretending to be apostles of Christ, pretending to be from Jerusalem, pretending to come with a directive that the, these Christians, these Galatian Christians, needed to be circumcised. It's as though they were saying, well, you know, faith in Christ is good, but you really need something else. You want to make sure, listen, you want to seal the deal, get circumcised. That's what they were saying. And the truth, beloved, is this, that in assessing the truth of the gospel, our focus should never be on the personality, should never be on the theological brilliance of 
the messenger, for as one commentator puts it, outward qualifications do not validate the message. The message validates the messenger. And that's one of the dangers of our times, you see, because we have today, in theological seminaries, we have today in pulpits, men with PhDs, men with high accolades, theological accolades, men who write books, books that sell, books that really are, are, are well talked about. And we have these people propounding a gospel which, after all, is nothing but poison. And many a Christian is taken aback. Why? Because of what these people have behind their names. Paul says, look, even if we, apostles, were to come to you preaching a different gospel, or even an angel were to come to you, he says, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. In other words, he's saying here, may the judgment of God fall on such a person. That's how serious distortion of the gospel is. Distortion of the gospel incurs divine judgment. Now, somebody would say, you know, would God really hold people accountable? Would people really go to hell if, yes, they have faith in Christ, but somehow they feel, okay, I need to really seal the deal with some little work, some little rituals? Would that really be dangerous, eternally damning? Paul thought so. Paul says, let him be anathema. If anybody comes with any gospel other than this, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Here's what he says in chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Here's what he says. He says this, look. He's being emphatic here. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, you see, if you accept circumcision, you see, you have faith in Christ. Let me tell you this. If you accept circumcision, If you follow these Judaizers and think that somehow you need to help out God with your salvation, you need to make your salvation more secure, he says this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, and just in case his readers did not get it, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Here's the big question. At the end of the day, my friend, your assurance of salvation, my assurance of salvation boils down to this. In what is our faith anchored? In what is our faith rooted? Is it Christ and church Is it Christ and baptism or is it faith in Christ and Christ alone? Here's the gospel. The gospel is this. Not by the works of the law are we justified, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. That's the gospel. That was what was at the heart of the Reformation. Rome said you had to go mass. You had to do this. You had to do that. You had to pay indulgences. 
The gospel comes along with the reminder that no person will be declared righteous by the works of the law. No person will be declared righteous by ritualistic observances. No person will be declared righteous by adding to faith, by adding to grace, works of the law. Distortion of the gospel incurs divine judgment. And all that truth needs to be heard again and again in our time until it hits home or it needs to be heard again and again. My friends, God takes seriously any kind of perversion, any kind of addition, any kind of alteration to the gospel. Why? And here's the answer. Because the gospel, if the gospel is any way distorted, if the gospel is any way adulterated, if it is in any way added to It is no longer good news, but bad news. It is no longer the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel of self-help. It is the gospel of performance-based righteousness. And that never gets anyone into the gates of heaven. And particularly when promoters are false, The false gospel caused believers in Christ to stumble. And here's the seriousness of it, beloved. God is determined to act in wrath and judgment against purveyors of false gospels. As our Lord Jesus warned in Mark chapter 9 verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him, here's Jesus, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's how serious God takes the perversion of his word, the perversion of his gospel. So we retain the truth of the gospel by holding to the conviction that there is but one and absolutely one gospel. Two, we retain the truth of the gospel by coming to grips with the sobering truth that diversion from the gospel is desertion of the Lord. It is to be traitorous toward God and his grace. We retain the truth of the gospel by recognizing that distortion of the gospel, perversion of the gospel, incurs divine judgment. And then here's fourthly how we are going to retain the truth of the gospel. We're going to retain the truth of the gospel. The gospel is going to retain, remain with us continually. How? By our vigorously defending its integrity. We retain the truth of the gospel by vigorously, passionately defending its integrity. And this is precisely what Paul is doing here in the Galatian epistle. We need not read too closely to find that Paul was intensely passionate when it came to defending the integrity of the gospel. The whole matter of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that it be properly understood, that it be correctly communicated, was the consuming passion of Paul's heart and life. Let's illustrate that. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We looked at these verses a short while ago. Notice Paul is shocked. He's horrified. 
He's deeply disappointed. He's deeply hurt at the thought that the Galatians had so quickly removed themselves from the truth of the gospel. It hurt him deeply. He was disappointed. Chapter 4 and verse 11, he is even afraid and is very much concerned that his labor among them might be in vain. He says, I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid that all my labor on you is in vain. In fact, he's even going to get more radical in chapter 5. He says, you see those people who are advocating that you be circumcised? He says in chapter 5, I would they were even cut off who trouble you. And essentially what he's saying there, you see, just to put it mildly and politely, Paul is saying, listen, why don't they just finish the job? He's that passionate. Get rid of it, is what he's saying. In relation to weak affecting converts, he sees himself in chapter 4 as one who is in the pangs of childbirth. He says, until Christ be formed in you, until they come to maturity in Christ. That's how much the gospel meant to Paul. And then as regards the Judaizing legalists, we see in chapter 1, he spared no time, he minced no words in invoking on them a divine curse for preaching a false gospel. With the most intense passion, he declares the anathema, the wrath of God, on such perverters of the gospel. Now let me say here, and this is very important. Let me say here that you and I certainly need to be passionate. We need to be vigorous about defending the gospel. But we are not, we are not, we are not permitted. We are not permitted to do what Paul did here. You and I are not allowed to issue a curse on heretics. You and I do not, why is that so? Because you and I do not have apostolic authority. Paul himself taught in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24-25. Here's what Paul says. This is what we do as Christians in the face of false gospels, false teaching. We don't go about declaring anathema, wrath on such people. How do, what do we do? 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25. Paul says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Ours is not the responsibility. Ours is not the task to be rude, to be crude, to be nasty, to be vulgar, to call people names, to issue curse on them. So how do we explain Paul's words? How do we explain what Paul is doing here in Galatians 1, 8 and 9? He says, let me tell you, Anathema on them, wrath be on them. How do we explain Paul's stance? It is to be noted that here in these verses, Paul is not venting carnal, sinful anger, the kind of anger that is unbecoming of Christ. 
Rather, through these words, through these passionate words of malediction, not benediction, malediction, Paul as an apostle is under divine inspiration. And being under divine inspiration, he is reflecting and he is conveying the mind and spirit of God concerning those who tamper with the gospel. He's a servant of Christ, he's a conduit, he's a messenger of Christ, and Paul is merely channeling, he's merely reflecting and communicating God's mind, God's passion toward those who pervert, to those who tinker with his gospel. That's how we are to read Paul's statement. In fact, as Matthew 23 clearly shows, our Lord Jesus himself, Jesus himself, tender, gentle, meek Lord Jesus, reserves some of the harshest, some of the most severe language for the religionists of his day, the scribes, the Pharisees, who were perverting the word of God, who were leading the people astray. We see that an entire chapter, Matthew 23, Jesus is launching a tirade, he's launching rebuke, he's issuing denunciation after denunciation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. How can you escape the fires of hell? That's what Jesus is doing. Why? The seriousness of the gospel. And we need to realize that as a servant of Christ, Paul has no personal agenda. His motivation for such search stance regarding the gospel is purely for the glory and honor of Christ. But couldn't Paul take a more loving approach? Couldn't he be more gentle? Couldn't he be more winsome toward these Judaizers? Couldn't he have adopted a gentle stance and seek dialogue so as to straighten out theological differences with these false teachers, someone will ask? And for that, Paul had an emphatic no way. Not at all. Not on your life. In fact, look at this statement in Galatians 2 verse 5. And this is why I said I think that what we have in Galatians 2 verse 5 is the overarching agenda behind Paul writing this letter. Here's Paul's adamant stance. Paul says, no, I refuse any kind of ecumenical gathering. I refuse any kind of theological compromise. Here's what Paul says in 2, two verse 5. He says, to them... We did not yield in submission, not even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, before my personal feelings, the gospel is what matters. The glory of God is what matters. Souls are at stake. Eternal issues are in the balance. As far as the gospel is concerned, that is why I'm so passionate. I am merely reflecting for you God's anger, God's wrath concerning those who tinker with his gospel. Paul was close to any idea or suggestion of conciliatory dialogue with those who were preaching what he understood to be a false gospel. In that regard, may I suggest this, he was narrow-minded in the most positive sense of the word. Some today would say he was intolerant, he was bigoted. 
But the fact of the matter was Paul took such a stern stance, a non-negotiable stance for the gospel because he well knew that in the absence of the true gospel, souls are in woeful, eternal jeopardy. And as he saw it, what was of critical importance then was a firm stance, a firm, uncompromising, decisive stance and defense for the truth of the gospel, not cowardly compromise in the name of love and unity. That's what, you see, that's our problem today, you know. What these people are saying, these sophisticated theologians are saying, these sophisticated church leaders are saying, they're saying, look, we can't let the unworld, unsaved world see us fighting and squabbling. But here's the truth, my friends. We should have no problem fighting and squabbling over the doctrines of grace. Why? Even in public. Why? Because on the doctrines of grace hang matters of eternal consequence. We're talking about souls being saved. We're talking about souls being damned. If we don't have the gospel right, we are in big trouble, and the gospel needs to be vigorously and passionately defended against heresies. There is but one gospel. Not a gospel of this and that, but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has well noted, quote, here's what one man says. The real question this passage poses is not why Paul became so incensed by this error. Listen to what he says. The real question in this passage is not why Paul became so incensed by this error, but why we, confronted with even deeper error in our day, seem not to be shocked or dismayed at all, but accept it as a natural thing. And beloved, here's the point. We cannot be passive. We cannot be laid back. We cannot resign ourselves to complacency and say, listen, there's not a thing we can do about it. We must vigorously, passionately defend the gospel. No, not curse people. No, not quarrel with people. But we are to do what Jude says in Jude verse 3. We are to contend earnestly. We are to strive earnestly for the gospel, the faith of the gospel. We are to do what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, striving for the faith of the gospel. Paul was willing to fight tooth and nail, as it were, resisting any kind of compromise with these Judaizers, not just for the sake of the spiritual benefit of the Galatian Christian, but for the sake of the truth of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God. We're going to have to ask the question then as we close this morning, what is the gospel? Next week we'll come back to this passage because there's more in this passage um, that we see concerns the gospel, retaining the truth of the gospel. So we, we want to close this morning by asking then, what is the gospel? I'm just going to answer the question, what is the gospel, by giving you it straight from Scripture. What is the gospel? How are we saved? Listen, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace. What is grace? Grace is a free gift. Grace is that which we do not earn. It is that which we do not deserve. It is that which we do not merit. 
In fact, in the context of scripture, grace is unsolicited because grace is the sovereign activity of God whereby he makes the first move towards wretched, lost, dying, helpless sinners. It is unmerited, it is unearned, it is unsolicited, it is undeserved. That is the grace of God. Now here's what Paul says. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. I pointed out in Sunday school class this morning how the writers of scripture love to engage in what we call redundancy. If you hear me preaching and I'm saying things that are redundant, it's a reason. Paul says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. But notice what he goes on to say, which is really kind of redundant, and it is not of yourselves. Listen to what he goes on to say, which is sort of redundant. It is the gift of God. Listen to what he says to show, again, some kind of redundancy. He says, not of works. What is Paul doing there? Paul is underscoring the fact that salvation resides solely, absolutely, in the free, unmerited Grace of God. That is the gospel. Titus 3, 5 through 7. God saved us. Here it comes. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, that is declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It says nothing there about ritual ceremonies, trying to be good, trying to do this, trying to do that. And then Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me close by saying this this morning. One of the, one of the big differences, major differences, you see, between the stance we take and the stance taken by Rome is on this very question. In the final analysis, how is a person saved? Rome and the rest of the world says the way we save is to make our way up to God by all kinds of works, by all kinds of self-effort, by all kinds of performance-based righteousness. We have to go to Mass. We have to say our Father ten times. We have to go confession. We have to do this. We have to do that. The Bible says it is faith through grace apart from works, period. If we are going to be saved, if a person is going to be saved, if one is to be saved, one must come by this one true gospel, which is what? Faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Sola fide, sola gratia, only by faith, only by grace. May God impress this on our hearts. May he put within us 
that drive to champion the truth of the gospel so that as a church, as individual believers, we might retain the truth of the gospel because at the end of the day, there's much at stake. Eternal destiny hangs on the truth of the gospel.